There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. In this edition, we'll discover the first evidence of genetic reincarnation in the eastern honeybee, and we'll chew over a recent review into the specification of imprints in mammals. I'm Jeff Marsh. The Cape honeybee, Apis mellifera has a peculiar trick up its sleeve when trying to produce new queens. If a female worker manages to sneakily lay a female offspring into a queen cell, that offspring has the potential to become the next genetically identical queen. This trick, known as Thalyticus parthenogenesis, is actually quite common amongst the hymenopterans, that's the ants, bees and wasps, but within the honeybees, Capensis was thought to be alone. Well, not anymore. Michael Holmes from the Behaviour and Genetics of Social Insects Laboratory at the University of Sydney and his team now claim to have found evidence of this form of genetic reincarnation in a different species, the eastern honeybee, Apis serrana. Here's Michael. Social insects, at least the hymenopterans, their sex determination system works a bit differently to other animals. Um, so fertilised eggs become female and unfertilised eggs become male. So males are all produced asexually. And usually um, it's by a process called Aeronauticus parthenogenesis, which results in the haploid male eggs. But occasionally the meiosis works a bit differently and the meiotic products fuse again and form diploid offspring and that results in female eggs. This is pretty rare in the animal kingdom, but it's relatively common in the social hymenoptera. But there's still only, until now, there was only one honeybee subspecies that was capable of thalidoche, uh, or that we knew was regularly capable of thalidoche, and that was the Cape honeybee, which lives in the Western Cape of South Africa. It had never been observed in any other species of honeybee until this paper, so that's why um, we were pretty excited when we saw it. And, and does it surprise you that it is so rare in the honeybees? Yeah, in some ways it is surprising, um, just because in a lot of ways sexual reproduction is a bit of a mystery in itself because it means the mother is kind of missing out on half of the potential fitness she could gain because half of the offspring's genome comes from the father. So if an individual can reproduce asexually, they don't miss out on that payoff. Obviously, there's a lot of benefits to sexual reproduction as well. Okay, so let's just dig into why it would be such a big fitness benefit for an individual. What, what's the difference between a worker and a queen at the genetic level? Well, at the genetic level, there's no difference. In honeybees, any egg that's laid can become a queen. First, it has to be fertilized, and so it can be female. And then if it's fed a low amount of royal jelly, it develops as a worker. And if it's fed a lot of food, and which is mostly royal jelly, it develops as a queen. But say if a worker can find a way to lay a female egg, then she then has the chance to become the mother of a new queen. And then if that queen ends up taking over a colony, then that's a massive fitness payoff. But then obviously there's constraints on that because there can only be one queen in a honeybee colony. So there would be quite a bit of competition. 
Okay, so it, so in a sense, if one of these workers manages to lay their egg in a queen cell, um, she could theoretically be uh, genetically reincarnated, they, they say. Yeah, and that's actually the title of the paper, because in a genetic sense, she would become the queen herself, even though she would obviously die probably not long after laying that egg. Okay, and the reason for your paper then is that there was this anecdotal evidence that this was more widespread than just the Cape honeybee. That's right. Most of my PhD work was on Apis serrana, which is native throughout Asia. This species was always a bit of an enigma to um, bee researchers because it had very high levels of overactivation, which was kind of only seen in the Cape honeybee. And I should say that they have high levels of overactivation when a queen is present, because usually when there's a queen in the colony, the workers don't lay eggs very often at all. So I worked on this species in the south of China, in Kunming, in Yunnan province. And just by speaking to locals there, we'd have these beekeepers telling us that they have these strange colonies, that they haven't had queens for months, and all of a sudden they have a queen again. And actually the story that they came up with is that they thought that workers were going to other colonies, stealing female eggs and bringing them back to her as a queen, which seemed a bit far-fetched. But then when I was working on these colonies myself, and I had some queenless colonies, we found these queens developing in there. And then when I brought them back to Sydney to genotype them, um, we found that genetically they could not have been daughters of the previous queen. Okay, so you set out this time to definitively prove that there were worker bees trying to genetically reincarnate themselves. Exactly. So we experimentally dequeened four colonies and we collected all the queen cells we found brought them back, genotyped them, and we found not all of them. Um, so we collected 37 in total, and four of them were both female and genetically incompatible with being daughters of the previous queen. And Thuriki is the best explanation we have for that. Now, given that workers and queens start off genetically identical, how is it that you distinguish between their offspring? Well, we used uh, microsatellite markers to do that. So... Usually when the queen is laying workers, they're produced sexually, which means it'll receive half its genome from its mother, the queen, and half from its father, the male. But in the case of Thalidicus reproduction, you can see it when you find that some of the microsatellite markers we used, um, if it was a sexually produced daughter, it would have an allele, one allele from the mother and one from the father. But what we found was that occasionally at some of the markers we used, these queens had only alleles from the father, not from the mother. Um, and I should clarify that these queens don't have a father because they're obviously reproduced asexually, so it's actually from the grandfather, not from the father. Okay, so we've now got definitive evidence that this is happening in this species. Uh, one question, why aren't all the workers doing this? If I were a worker bee, I would want to leave my eggs in a queen cell, surely? Yeah, well, that, that's a very good question, and it's actually something that I'd like to follow up. The thing is, in a colony of social insects, uh, selection acts at multiple levels. There's individual level selection and colony level selection. So for an individual bee, you're absolutely right. Um, it would be the, one of the best things for her to do is to lay an egg that could become the next queen. But if all the workers in the colony start reproducing, then they actually don't do any work and this leads to the whole society crumbling. The other thing is that if everyone's reproducing thalidicously, you eventually can end, potentially end up with completely clonal species which aren't um, very genetically diverse. It basically, basically has the same effect as inbreeding. And so it's important to 
keep high levels of genetic diversity just to make the population more robust. And so the finding that this species also uh, gets involved in Teletiki uh, might explain a recent invasion of these bees in Australia. Yes, Apis serrana um, has recently established invasive populations in New Guinea, the Solomon Islands, and here in Australia, in far north Queensland. Social insects can be really successful invasive species, and the best social insect invaders are ones that can reproduce politically. So we see a lot of ant examples, the fire ant, for example. There's also the Cape honeybee has some really invasive populations in the north of South Africa where they aren't normally found. And the reason for that is that invasive populations usually suffer from founder effects. It's hard for them to find mates and things like that. And if they can reproduce asexually, they don't need to worry about finding mates. Uh, the other thing is that if a highly parasitic genotype happens to exist in that population, then Thalidiki will preserve the, those characteristics and make them really good at what they do, basically. So it's possible like, that the invasion in Australia is being facilitated by Thalidiki, and that actually would help explain why this invasion has happened so fast and why this species has done so well here, because it's actually been spreading a lot faster than anyone ever predicted it would. That was Michael Holmes from the University of Sydney. Our second story this month is a review of a topic we see again and again on the podcast, that is genomic imprinting. More specifically, the review discusses the discrete genetic elements at the heart of imprinting, the imprinting control regions, and how these are distinguished early on in the gametes and then survive the upheaval at fertilisation. Gavin Kelsey from the Babraham Institute, Cambridge, UK, co-authored the review and joins me now. We start off with a bit of an imprinting refresher. For most of the genes that we have, we have two copies. Both copies are usually active, irrespective of whether they come from mother or father. And this is very useful because it provides us with a backup in case we have sustained a mutation in, in one of the copies. Imprinted genes are rather interesting because they have given up this advantage of having two copies because for these genes, only one of the two alleles is expressed and that is done in a completely parent-of-origin dependent manner. So there are imprinted genes for which it's only ever the copy that you've got from your father that is active, and there are imprinted genes for which it's only ever the copy that you've got from your mother is active. And so there's been a great deal of interest in understanding how it is that these genes have been singled out for this unusual monoallelic expression. Within genetics, this is a fairly new field. How many imprinted genes do we know about in mammals? At the current uh, best estimate, there are about 150 or 200 imprinted genes in, in the mouse or in humans. And so this represents no more than about 1% of our total genomic content. So they're not just sort of dotted out singly throughout the genome. They seem to appear in clusters. That's right. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many genes, imprinted genes, seem to exist in these clusters that can comprise anything between 10 and 20 uh, different genes that have all been co-opted to become imprinted in, in that cluster. There are important examples of imprinted genes that exist on their own outside of these clusters, and they might tell us something important about the origin or the evolution of, of imprinting. And so these genes, whether they're in clusters or not, are thought to be controlled by what's known as an imprint control region. These are the short elements of DNA. If you were to remove that DNA element, then uh, you would lose imprinting of the whole of that cluster. And I guess the distinguishing feature about these imprinting control regions is that they have a different epigenetic state on the maternal allele and the paternal allele. And this epigenetic difference has arisen in the gametes in the sperm and, and the eggs. So the big question here is the fact that you can often trace these imprinting marks right the way back to the gametes. And so people assume that that's where imprint specification took place. Yes, absolutely. I think the focus over a number of years has been to understand how it is that the imprinting control regions can be marked differently by DNA methylation in the egg or, or the sperm. And it's certainly been a hallmark of, of an imprinting control region that you can trace this DNA methylation back to that stage. But I think what we've begun to realize in recent years is that the methylation difference in the egg and the sperm is much wider than just at imprinting control regions. There is likely to be a, a second level of specification of an imprint that relates to how these differences in DNA methylation are then propagated or not um, in the embryo itself. So could you paint a picture then of that wider sort of methylation landscape in the gametes? So if you were to look in, in the sperm and you were able to walk along a sperm chromosome, you would find that the sperm landscape is almost universally methylated. There's an awful lot of methylation in the sperm, with a notable exception being CPG islands. And CPG islands are classically associated with promoters of, of genes, and many genes will have an unmethylated CPG island. So, so the sperm looks really quite like in, any somatic tissue in that regard. In the other side, the, the landscape is rather distinct in that about half of the genome is methylated uh, in the oocyte, and the other half is, is unmethylated. And again, if you were to walk along an oocyte chromosome, you would walk between a region of, of dense methylation, which might cover an active gene, and then you would enter a region of hypomethylation, uh, and you would continue in that, in that region until you encounter the next methylated domain, which is likely to correspond to the next active gene that you would find in the oocyte genome. So by that analysis, you could posit that actually about half of the genome has the potential for imprinting because it differs in its methylation status between the egg and the sperm. Nonetheless, the fact that there is this widespread methylation 
leans towards the idea that there isn't this specific imprinting machinery in the germline, in the egg and the sperm. Absolutely. Um, imprinting won't happen unless there, there is a methylation difference in, in the gametes. But because that applies to half the genome, we need this filter in the embryo to decide which region is going to be an imprinted locus or not. So what is our current understanding then of this selection process? How do the, the imprinted genes specifically uh, remain imprinted in the developing embryo? Well, the first challenge that an imprinted gene has to overcome in the zygote, in the pre-implantation embryo, is that there's a tremendous amount of DNA methylation reprogramming going on in those very early embryos. And it's been known for some time now that an awful lot of the methylation that is contributed on sperm chromosomes is, is actively stripped off the chromosome. And for the uh, oocyte-derived uh, chromosomes, most of the methylation is also lost simply because it's not being properly replaced as the DNA is replicated each time a cell divides. So I guess one can deal with most of the DNA methylation differences that existed in the oocyte and the sperm by that comprehensive genome-wide demethylation that seems to be very pervasive and, and very, very much conserved between mammals as well. And so the challenge then for an imprinted gene is that it has to hang on to the methylation at the time that the genome is really being, being comprehensively stripped of DNA methylation. And so that's probably what distinguishes the imprinted control regions um, because they have sequences within them um, that bind factors that will ensure that the DNA methylation machinery gets there at, at each uh, DNA replication uh, cycle. So the imprinting control regions, they manage to escape this demethylation all the way through? That's right, yes. And what's been interesting is that studies in, in the mouse and studies in the human have pointed to uh, very similar factors being in, involved um, in that methylation maintenance at, at imprinted control regions. Both in human and in the mouse, the work identified DNA binding factor called ZFP57 that seems specifically to bind to methylated sequences in uh, imprinted control regions. Yes, and so most of this work has been carried out in the mouse. Are the mechanisms going to be the same in humans and other mammals? That's a very um, important and unresolved question at, at the moment. On the one hand, one would imagine that there must be a good deal of conservation in the mechanisms because we know that many of the genes that are imprinted in the mouse are the same as the genes that are imprinted in the human or, or in other mammals in which it's been investigated. And the ICRs are in orthologous positions in, in clusters and many of the clusters are, are very similar between the species. So broadly, the mechanisms are going to be similar. And we know that ZFP57 is essential for maintenance of imprints in the mouse as it is also in, in humans. But there's some rather interesting paradoxes there. So, for example, in the mouse, you need a, an active DNA methyltransferase, DNA-MT3A, to put, put DNA methylation in place in the oocyte. But you also need a, a partner protein called DNA-MT3L. It's a member of the same, same protein family, but it just doesn't have a, an active catalytic domain. But if you deprive a mouse oocyte of DNA-MT3L, you get no methylation. So DNA-MT3A will not function by itself. However, if you look at any expression analysis that has been done on a human oocyte, you will see there is no DNA-MT3L there at all. 
And so the human oocyte has to be able to methylate in its absence uh, in a way that a mouse oocyte cannot do. How would you envisage a new imprinted gene evolving? The simplest scenario would be that the DNA methylation landscape of the oocyte uh, changes and therefore you would create a new methylated domain associated with a new gene being active. If that methylated domain somewhere within it contained sequences that could be recognized by the methylation-specific, sequence-specific binding factor, such as LFP57 in the embryo, then you have the ability to maintain that uh, newly acquired methylation mark in the oocyte. Another way that new imprinted genes could arise and, and have arisen is through a process of uh, retrotransposition. When a gene is copied from its, its ordinary location to a new location in the genome, so after a gene has been transcribed and copied into mRNA, you can go through a process of reverse transcription and turning that RNA into a DNA copy. And these DNA copies can insert elsewhere in the genome. And there's some imprinted genes that have, have arisen through these retrotransposition events, but only if that has occurred into a pre-existing gene, not if it's occurred into a, a non-transcribed region of the genome. So what seems to have happened is that a retrotransposition event has occurred into what would have been a methylated domain in the oocyte genome. And these retrotransposed copies tend to be very CG-rich, and if they have, therefore, the sequences that would attract a methylation maintenance factor, such as LFP57, they would then also have the criteria for methylation maintenance after fertilization. What are the remaining big questions about imprinting? I think a very important area of future work uh, is going to be to understand the extent to which the principles that have been established in such detail in the mouse um, extends uh, more widely and in particular to, to human imprinting. We know of many different human imprinted gene disorders and it would be important to understand the origin of the epigenetic errors that have given rise to those, to those disorders. So knowing whether human imprinting depends upon the same machinery in the gametes and in the early embryo as does the mouse would be very useful because then, then one has the obvious candidate genes to investigate for imprinting errors. That was Gavin Kelsey. And that's it for this month. See you next time for another episode of the Heredity Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.